Powered by Cooper Parry, the rebels of accountancy, this is the No Bull Podcast. No Bull Podcast. Our purpose, to disrupt, lead and make life count. We help entrepreneurial, like-minded businesses to thrive across the UK. Your podcast host, Steve Whittle. Why are we doing a Brexit business update? For most of us, Brexit has divided the country and the topic has been banned at the dinner table along with religion and politics. For those in business, it's a subject that needs discussing more. Businesses are pissed off with the lack of guidance from the government and how to trade with the EU. In December, they dropped in too much information and this confused all companies. This created a lack of confidence with them and in advisors and some advisors took advantage by charging for unnecessary services. We need to get back to basics, simplify and create a model that works for people. And by the end of this podcast, you'll know what questions you need to be asking your advisors uh, to make the most of your post-Brexit business. I'm joined today by Damien Shirley, a tax partner at Cooper Parry. He's an expert in tax and Brexit uh, business issues uh, and has firm opinions about how businesses should be treated. We'll meet him shortly. Before we do, let's meet our guest co-host, Helen Channer. Helen is a tax expert at Cooper Parry, and we'll make sure we keep Damien in check, and we'll make sure we glean the most important information from him. Hey Helen, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks Steve. Looking forward to today, and I'll do my very best to keep Damien in check. I think the last 12, 13 years of working together has put me in fairly good stead to keep him under control, but can't promise. No, no, I know Damien and um, I'm, I'm with you. And uh, Damien, it's so great to have you here. Um, at Cooper Parry, our purpose is to disrupt, lead and make life count. I'm fairly confident that is you all over. But please, uh, by way of introduction, what do you do to disrupt, lead and make life count? I knew you were going to ask me that, Steve. Um, disrupt, I mean, disrupt's a bit of a funny term, isn't it? Because a few years ago, it would have been all about tech, tech disrupting, whereas I'm a bit of a Luddite. And I think I disrupt these days by, I'm told I disrupt because I still use my Mont Blanc fountain pen, um, I buy vinyl, and I'm told I'm disruptive from doing that these days. For the listeners, at today's date of recording, we're about six months on from the end of the transition period, and the date when Brexit really became a true thing that people needed to be aware of and working out what on earth they do. Looking back to, when, looking back to the lead up to Brexit and the final months of 2020, how would you describe the position that businesses found themselves in when they came to their preparation stages? Yeah, it seems a long time ago now, yeah, <laughs> after yeah. the last six months. A lot's changed. Oh, a lot has changed. I, I think, if I track back, I mean, we had the, obviously the pandemic going on as well, which is far from helpful. And I can remember girl Boris talking about getting Brexit done. And I guess it was always going to be painful when it was done. But I'd, at the time, I was thinking, please, guys, maybe just give business a few months more. You know, just to try to get through, obviously, the difficulty that the world has been facing at the moment. But they didn't, didn't take that up. I thought that was odd because businesses just didn't have staff on the ground and many furloughed and many at home and so on. So that, for me, didn't, didn't help. But I do respect the fact that, you know, the voting public wanted Brexit to happen and it was going on for too long. So it had to happen at some point. But for me, I think there was a, a large period right through from the votes all that time ago, right through to um, probably about the 24th of December, where there was just a lack of information from, from, from my angle. It made it really hard for businesses and advisors alike. And um, businesses were getting letters from government just saying, yeah, get ready for Brexit. Um, TV campaigns with people, you know, the man on the ground or the woman on the ground just sort of, you know, 
banging a hammer or doing something or and just saying, are you ready for Brexit? You know, I certainly am. And I was thinking, well, I want to, re- I want to employ these people because if they know what's going on, then uh, they're gold dust, you know. Um, so I don't think the TV campaign's helped. Um, advisors, um, some advisors were saying, well, prepare for a no-deal Brexit. Now, I don't know whether I agree with that being the right, right, right move. Um, because in my view, there was always going to be a deal. There was always going to be some sort of deal. It would have been a, compl- a political bombshell for the UK. And I think the EU has got so many markets where they're reliant on the UK farmer, automotive and so on. There was always going to be some sort of deal. But what the deal would be, where, you know, we all waited to see. Um, preparing for a no-deal Brexit is a really intrusive thing to do, a complete change in your supply chain and so on, ending up, you know, very costly exercise, time-consuming and perhaps not worthwhile. Um, so I have clients who were trying to prepare for what the world might be. Some clients just saying, well, we're doing absolutely nothing until we know for certain what's going on. And then sort of came into December from my angle, you know, we're starting to then just build some insight and think, well, what the hell are clients going to do here? And on around 15th or 18th, I don't know whether you remember, Helen, but... Some stuff started for me, some guidance started coming through from Northern Ireland where I think people just thought there was going to be frictionless trade with Northern Ireland. You know, it's a big deal with the kind of wider political ramifications around that. And then some guidance was announced which, um, you know, laid out requirements to have some sort of establishment in Northern Ireland and also for applications to be made by the 31st of December when people were about to sort of, sort of shut down for, for Christmas after what's been a tough year. So I go into the kind of updates and find, found around 75 updates in one day. And it, it looked like customs had just dropped this sort of, uh, well, government I should say, dropped an information overload upon businesses to say, well, hey, here it is, see you next year. And I know many businesses saw that and just thought, well, we can't take any more. It can't be this bad. And one client said, well, let's just suck it and see. We just want to do no more. This cut, this trade, a common, you know, trade. A common comment was trade isn't going to stop. It's just not, you know, things aren't going to stop. So let's just wait to see. Come back after Christmas, see where we stand. So a real um, period of uncertainty, and then more uncertainty through information overload. Um, we then came back into, into the new year, and um, we thought, well, is this going to be a sort of Y two K non-issue? You know, things seem to be sort of going quite smoothly. Goods were entering the EU, goods were coming into the UK. There seemed to be a bit of a lull for two, three weeks in in January. And um, that I think that was because not many checks were being done on the borders and so people were under, under the assumption that, you know, everything was okay. But it's a kind of weird, weird world that we live in on the regulatory side. You know, if people aren't checking that things are working, then things kind of work because nobody's telling you that they're not. So we then come into sort of January, um, sorry, February, March into, you know, even into today and people started needing to submit reporting, their reporting requirements to meet compliance requirements overseas and so on. They needed to get all important documents from freight forwarders and different people to allow themselves to be compliant, recover their import VAT, um, reimburse freight forwarders for customs duty and different things and everything seem to go to shit if I may if I'm allowed, I'm allowed to say that Steve sorry, sure, yeah. Yeah. sorry. be disruptive I'm right. being disruptive there we go you're being um, a bit naughty but hey um, hell, you should have <laughs> warned me shouldn't you we need some bleeps sorry about that everyone. Um, yeah it did go to shit though to be honest because it, it, people realised that things that they thought were in order um, weren't so so they, they hadn't worked out with their supply chain who was going to be the actual 
importer of records, you know, who's going to be responsible for imports and exports, who's going to have the rights of that recovery, people not understanding, getting it wrong, people expecting to recover costs from the government that have been incurred at, when goods went into the countries, but actually they were the wrong person to do so and so on. Other points then coming up where people started getting goods blocked at the borders because they didn't have the right author authorizations in place and the right representation in different countries. So we've seen worryingly of sort of ever increasing amount of issues coming into play for businesses as, they, as they're hitting reporting deadlines, I think, you know, the reality hits of what they need to do. Um, so we, we had a bit of a lull, then a peak period, probably a bit of a lull again, but people now coming in, now the dust has settled a little bit just to kind of do things properly um, at this point on. So a real, real journey for business right through and, and for advisors alike as well. So yeah, tough times really. Was that just um, a few businesses there? I mean, because you had said all those 78 points dropped. So surely if they just nailed those 78 points, majority of businesses did that, didn't they? And then uh, they were, they, most businesses weren't getting stopped at the borders? Well, yeah, it's the nailing of the 78 points. Act. It's the understanding of the 78 points. Yeah, because um, it wasn't as simple as 78 points. It was 78 briefings of varying length, you know, one page to 100 page documents. And the, the data which they dropped, the businesses were just like, we've not got the people on the 24th of December, whenever the official deal was finally announced, to say, actually, yeah, let's get ahead around what all this is saying. And I think something that I've observed from a, quite a lot of clients was there was a spectrum from the clients who just hung their hat on the deal being some kind of panacea and everything would just be fine and things would carry on the way they'd always done to clients at the other end of the spectrum who were sort of taking the view, we're not going to get a deal and everything's going to go to hell, but we don't know what to do and how mm. do we prepare and what will the rules say? And we probably ended up somewhere down the middle with the deal that we got, but the speed at which we went from no information to an avalanche of information just didn't give the businesses the time to get their heads around it. Yeah, I agree completely. And the, and the deal itself is interesting because that came out, I think, on the 24th, was it? Yes. As a Christmas present and a celebration. And um, within that, there were, if, you're a, if you're a business, you were expect, if there were to be a deal, you were kind of expecting it to be a free trade deal of some sort with the EU, which in, in essence it is. But actually hidden within the deal are a number of real complex requirements which dictate and decide whether the goods that you're producing so you're buying raw materials from overseas you produce you make something you might distribute something into eu countries these real complex set of rules will decide whether or not these items are duty-free when they go into the eu which has a massive impact on the commercial pricing that you're charging and equally who's going to be incurring the customs duty both in terms of being the, the formal importer so, you know, you, Steve, you're a customer and I import to you. Um, one of the two of us has to be the person that actually is the importer of record. It's called the person that is responsible for filling out all the forms and paying it in the mind of the, of the government and who the government would go to if it, if it wasn't paid. But then on top of that, if that was you, Steve, you might say, well, it's all well and good because I'm over here in a country in the EU, so it's kind of easier for me to do, Damien. But actually, I wasn't expecting to pay this amount of money, so you've got to pay me back under the commercial contract that I've got with you. So yeah, I'm happy to pay it, as far as the government's concerned, but I want it back from you. So these conversations couldn't be had before the 24th of December, 
because nobody knew what the kind of parameters were and the rules of play that everybody was dealing with. I touched on Northern Ireland earlier. Um, I was always pretty shocked as an advisor, um, you know, with the sort of knowledge of the wider issues around the Good Friday Agreement and the tensions that are in place, that, you know, and the talk of there being frictionless trade. But when I saw reference to um, there needing to be some form of establishment in Northern Ireland into, in order to be able to move your goods into Northern Ireland, um, that in its own right I knew was going to cause problems for clients. And there's a... There, there, um, the government since has offered a concession which, which allows you to get out of that, but only till November this year, so there's going to be more difficulties moving forward. Um, one point, actually, that you know that springs to mind, Steve, is, is it, we did have some clients that, if you look at our world, Helen and I, we deal with customs duty, VAT, and, but there's a whole raft of other regulatory requirements that come into play with now, now that we've left the EU. And so we might say to a client, leading up to Brexit. In fact, I had clients had a drinks manufacturer who, who said, I'm going to get out of all this Brexit mess. I've spoken to my um, distributors around the EU and they are going to be the importer and they'll deal with all this mess. And because I'm not importing into the EU, then um, I'm covered. Happy days with this. I just can walk away from it. I said, that's cool. What are your trade terms that you have with the customer? Because I think there's 11 or 12 different ways in which you can trade, there are different rules which decide who's responsible for risk here and there, who's responsible for insurance um, matters, who's responsible for transport and different things. So I asked them, well, what terms of trade are you using? And they said, well, we've never heard of terms of trade. What, 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 what does this mean? And we talked through that and got them into a place where the customer was truly the importer under their trade terms. And what that meant for them in terms of our world on customs duty is that they'd remove themselves from this Brexit mess, if I can call it a mess, to be honest. Um, they deal with an export, customer is dealing with the import, and the UK supplier just has no further dealings. That's all fine until you move into wider regulatory issues such as product labelling and product conformity. So and, and every good that is sold into the EU has some sort of product conformity requirement attaching to it, particularly consumer goods, which can range from very slight or nil requirements, they might be kicked out or exempted, through to some real complex requirements that go alongside it. So if you take this drinks manufacturer, they needed to place upon their label who the um, responsible party was, the person was that was representing the company in the EU. So this, this UK supplier didn't have an establishment there. Um, and they needed somebody to be their representative on the continent. And it turns out that the regulations say, well, whoever is the importer is the responsible person. So there they were in our customs world with us saying, hey, you've removed yourself from all these customs issues, import VAT issues, because you're not the importer. But they now opened up a product labelling issue because the person they agreed to be the importer for our in our tax world then became the person that had to go on their product labels and be effectively liable for any issues around the uh, compliance of the drink. You know, something went wrong with the drink, if there was some issue, a health issue with it or whatever, it would be the distributor that um, would be the first port of call for the regulator. So obviously the distributor would say, well, we don't like this. So they'd look for kind of collateral warranties and indemnities from the supplier. But equally, the drinks manufacturer might say, well, we just don't want somebody else to be our face on the continent. So I feel, what I felt is you, 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 you sort of put one piece of the jigsaw in place and then another piece falls out of place. It's one of, the, one of those little puzzles where you have to move little slides around, you know. 
I've found Brexit to be one where you need to have a coherent set of advisors, a collaboration of a number of advisors. So we work with regulatory specialist lawyers and as many, I've seen many other firms, but pulling everybody together that is needed to get trade from A to B. It's not this Brexit isn't a tax issue. Brexit is a supply chain issue, a regulatory issue. And yes, a tax issue, but just thinking about one area is wrong. You know, you've got to think about the whole piece. Um, but, but generally, those that were not deemed the importer have had an easier time than those that have thought, well, okay, we're going to improve customer kind of confidence. We're going we're gonna to be the importer. We're going to just take all the hassle out of our customer base around the EU. We're going to trade on terms where we, the supplier, become the importer in different countries. Then we sell them on in a like-for-like manner, i.e., if we have competitors around the EU selling to these customers, we want to be in a place where we are like for like, excuse <clears throat> me, again against those suppliers that we're we're battling against to do business, and those guys, in my view, have had a real tough time of it, and they're the ones that are suffering still today. The No Bull Podcast with Steve Whittle. So you've covered a lot there in a very short space of time, as has. The business world they've had a lot to get their heads around we're now six months down the line and some might think that the teething problems should have started to work themselves out now and things start to be a bit more clear would you say that's a fair comment or a business is still struggling are they still pissed off about well how does this really work for us in reality i think i think they've i think it's typically iceberg stuff for me um we're seeing more and more issues come about it's, i think i think I think governments as well. I mean, I've got some sympathy for government because you know we the public voted for this. Great, you know, Brexit could you know it could be a great thing for the country. I'm sure it will be. But everybody had to work out what the new world was going to be. Governments as well as business as well as advisors and so on. And I think that the idea that things were going to be resolved on Jan one is 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 you know actually. Jan 1 was the date at the end of the transition where people started to work out, where everyone started to work out, you know, what, what the world was going to look like. And I think for me, the, the, the one that stands out, which is hitting the press at the moment, particularly with the G7 summit and the tension it kind of took over that, is, is the Northern Ireland protocol with, with, with the Good Friday Agreement sitting behind it. Um, I have huge concerns leading up to Brexit that... Um, this was being ignored or pushed to one side. For me, it was going to be the issue, not just because of the political issue, but because it's a um, it's a route for goods to go through and enter the UK or enter the EU. You know, it's a mainland kind of border, which is always going to be you know it's going to raise concerns for the EU because it's open to abuse if people wanted to. Um, so I understand they had to be super tight on that. So obviously, we have this. Um, effectively the sea border and the complexities for moving goods between the EU and Northern Ireland in particular, sorry, between the UK and Northern Ireland in particular. I mean, they're, they're huge, even from that advisor's angle, I think there was some further kind of um, rules and updates that came out in April, which are now being kind of looked at as, as businesses are moving their, their products and as an advisor, actually writing, you know, a, a note to help um, businesses understand what they need to do and, and don't need to do to, and what forms they have to fill in, and how they go about their dealings for goods to be. They they have this term not at risk, so goods aren't at risk if they're going to stay in Northern Ireland, and 
one would think there could have been a simpler way of resolving this, but you could imagine the kind of politicians and litigators around the table at the 11th hour trying to sort of tick off every permutation or risk that might come about, and then that created this arduous kind of number of rules and conditions. And let's not forget that the Northern Ireland Protocol might say one thing, and part it's supposed to all be fully enforced now, mm. but the, the UK is unilaterally extending and putting delays into certain things, yeah. and that's what's causing a lot of the tension, because the EU is saying, well, this should be fully enacted by now. Yeah. Why are you not following the rules that we agreed on? Yeah, I've got a personal issue. I need to be careful, Steve. If you take me down that path, and I've got, I've got a real issue around sort of, uh, you know, as a country, you know, we need to be the kind of like a figurehead on morality and adherence to international law. And I'm not saying we're not, clearly, but, you know, it does raise a question mark where it's good press to think whether we're actually pushing against pre-agreed international law at the same time as we're trying to do, you know, good around the globe. It doesn't sit right with me. I think that, you know, a deal was done. However complex it is, you know, a deal was done on particular terms. And dare I say, I've got some sympathy with the EU on, on that particular point. Because it's, you know, if the UK wins through, then it's made it very easy for countries to leave the EU. And I think that, you know, there will be some real contenders for that in, in years to come. So I don't think the EU is necessarily... position is going to get a little bit worse from November because the um, simplifications around needing establishments or not over in Northern Ireland are going to come to a close. But then by, by that point, we might have a completely different protocol to what we have now. Who knows? Um, the issue for me as well with Northern Ireland is talk of trade wars. You know, are, are, are the EU going to remove some of the um, tariff-free arrangements that we have in place, you know, as a, as a form of sanction to get the UK to fall into line and adhere to the international rules that the EU say we've agreed to? I mean, I find the Northern Ireland piece hugely difficult to contend with, and I'm sure businesses do as well. Um, we're still annoying businesses. Uh Rules of origin, I suppose, you know, the thing that, again, which I saw, which doing what we do, Helen, when I, you know, when Brexit came about, you know, my mind my went straight to, well, it, you know, we won't be able to sort of send stuff across tariff free. You know, there's an extra cost of business here, which people just weren't understanding. And still to this day, if you buy, if, for example, you buy in some goods from a third country and you're a distributor in the UK and, you import them, you're deciding what to do with them. Do you sell them in the UK? Do you, do you move them into the EU? You can end up with double duty hits there, which just didn't exist before because we were in a single market. So there is a set of rules which are sit within the um, trade agreement which dictate when you can and can't move products from the UK and into the EU and back and so on. To answer the kind of question on whether there is there are tariff quotas attaching to goods, you've got to really get down sometimes to the the component elements of a product, right down sometimes to you know looking at say the composition of particular metal items that might sit within the products or the processing the the, the form of processing that they undertake, the extent of the processing that might occur in the UK. So, um, as an advisor to businesses, you know I'd encourage them really to you know, 
they need the right people on board to understand some of these points. And I think businesses are just learning that. So they need, you know, people from manufacturing and from, from procurement, just sort of getting under the skin of what these products actually kind of, uh, how they're made up, how they're, how they're produced, what they're produced from, just to help the business then work out the rules and understand whether they have this tariff-free trade, um, which, you know, as advisors, really interesting work. I'm sure other advisors feel the same, but it's kind of intrusive. You get to know an awful lot about the business, um, but that is becoming ever more difficult. The No Bull Podcast. Well, I think that's a really key point because you talk about, and I completely agree, the, the rules are quite logical when you start to work through them, but I think a lot of it is about perception. And when the deal was announced, it was being hailed as a tariff-free deal. And I think businesses that weren't, used to uh, importing from around the world who would say eu purchases only they were having this sort of played out to them like oh there is no tariffs anymore and the reality is quite different mm. and i don't think the mainstream media has helped because they've equally gone with this very wide message from from the government that oh it's okay we've got a trade deal and most goods they won't have tariffs on them mm. and i think most is far too wide um a, mm. a simplification because the reality we're seeing is that that isn't playing out in, in in truth yeah yeah i completely share that and i think that i can understand that when we were back in the eu if you bought products in from third countries there'd often be tariff quotas on them some do, some they don't. And some countries, you know, they'll have preferential trade agreements. So, you know, developing countries can move products into the EU tariff-free. But we leave the EU and there was this sort of misunderstanding, as you say, driven by the government and press saying, you know, well, there'll be this new UK trade tariff, which is going to be bigger, bolder and better. <clears throat> but the truth is that if you take preferential trade agreements with other countries, um, where clients might have been happily importing from these countries duty-free, they expected these preferential trade agreements to continue under the UK tariff now in place that they were relying upon for that first import into the UK, and that's not the case, you know. So they were they were getting caught out there. Um, and then secondly, they were paying, some are paying tariffs when they enter the UK, but then having to pay tariffs again when they enter the EU. So you've got that extra, extra limit. I think that was missed. The one for me, Helen, which is really, you know, it comes up, the more, the more you work with businesses, the more you see these things. And the one that um, I really struggle with, uh, and again, I know businesses do, is if you, we've got a couple of clients where, you know, uh, we've got a client who produces uh, T-shirts, prints T-shirts and so on. So T-shirts are coming in from Portugal to the UK. So they're coming from the EU. There's a small amount of work done on them to the UK to print them and put labels on them, this sort of thing. And then they go back out into the EU to the customer. So they kind of start in the, the EU, they originate in the EU, they come into the UK, small amount of work is done, and then they go back out into the EU. So we're supposed to have this trade agreement in place to facilitate trade between the UK and the EU. You'd think, well, that's fine. And the first limb, getting them from Portugal to the UK, is absolutely fine. But actually getting them back into the EU is, is then a problem. And it's a problem because we don't do enough work on them in the UK. If we did more production to, on them in the UK, then they would satisfy the rules to go back in duty-free, which is just beggars belief. You know, the complexity and the, the logic behind that I really struggle with because, in my view, you've got a kind of ring-fence production chain which starts in the EU, dips out to, you know, 
the UK under the, this free trade agreement that we have with the EU. But the second limb back into the EU is then problematic, despite the fact that the T-shirts just haven't really changed. They just have a logo or a label put on them. So for me, I, I struggle with that. And that's hidden within the free trade agreements. And I think there's just a couple of lines in you know, a huge amount of customs guidance, which um, invites you to look at whether there's a, you know, there's a whole different set of rules on return goods relief. And it invites you to work out whether you're compliant in some other area that's kind of like disconnected in a way or it's only partially connected to the free trade deal. And you've got businesses that are trying to, you know, they're trying to just sell their products. I mean, this is what frustrates me with anything. It's not a Brexit thing. It's generally, with, you know, some of the regulatory change. I don't know whether they really understand, you know, government understands what this means for people on the ground. If you've got, if you've got a business that simply wants to trade, you go back to my point at the start, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic, um, the sheer complexity around this stuff is, 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 is tough. Um, you know, we see in other areas, you know, freight forwarders and some of the difficulties they're having and so on. Um, so I, th I think, you know, back to Steve's point, you know, is it have to, or do you yourself have, have things settled in the last six months? I think this six months has been the kind of like, you know, the guinea pig period for people to work out how to then make things settle. And something's got easier, some things just continue and get more complex, such as Northern Ireland, as I touch on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it continues to be tough. Powered by Cooper Parry, the No Bull Podcast. So, Damien, uh, freight forwarders. I've heard you mention this a couple of times now, and I can't, I can't be the only one who doesn't know what that is. Uh, yeah, you're not far from it, in fact. And freight forwarders move shifty goods from A to B, and I feel for them to be honest because leading up to Brexit, I think there was a heavy amount of reliance placed upon freight forwarders because they move the goods and they're at the ports. But I can recall, I can't recall which freight forward it was, but there was some LinkedIn video I saw with this poor freight forwarder saying, well, who, who, who says that we know what's going on? These are new rules. Yes, we shift your goods, but it doesn't mean that we're, we've, you know, we're the oracle of all things Brexit, you know. But, but unfortunately, business does put them in that place. And whether that's justified or not is a moot point, perhaps with the bigger freight forwarders. Um, you know, these global kind of household names. Yeah, one would think that they should have been aware that, that there was a need for them to be absolutely all over these rules and to offer, you know, a holistic package of services. And, and, and I think they do. But the issue is, from my angle, is actually when people are talking to the freight forwarders, they don't quite know what to ask them. And they, what we see, in, you know, what's quite common is you might have... Um, in fact, we have, if I give an example of a clothing retailer trading in multiple different countries, um, they worked heavily with a kind of like, you know, household name on the freight forwarding side, but they were dealing with a UK contact and you had a client who didn't fully understand what to ask, speaking to a UK contact who was actually assigned to deal only with the export side, you know, getting the goods out of the UK. So goods were landing then in the different countries and the wrong messages had been passed to the team on the freight forwarder's side on the continent. So they were filling out documentation incorrectly, placing the wrong parties down as to who was the important source. So our client was expecting to 
be the importer in the other countries. They were paying the freight forwarder for import VAT that was incurred when the goods landed. And they were expecting to be able to recover that three months later through their kind of local VAT returns. But none of that worked out. And it took that client, along with the freight forwarder, over a month to work out just what had gone wrong, let alone how to fix it. And what had gone wrong is that you had a freight forwarder who their main kind of objective was to get the product to the customer. So what they did at the other end was to change the documentation in order to get the goods through. So what our client wanted to do would have blocked the goods at the ports and the freight forwarder decided without any consultation to therefore override what the client wanted to do and just shift them to their customers. And that's created in the first three months, £155,000 cost for the client for various reasons. And what the client said was, well, we'd have much preferred to know that there was a problem at the port so we could have fixed it and have a slight delay in our supply chain of what are non-perishable goods, as opposed to just incurring this cost and only finding out through the way the kind of processes work some two or three months down the line. Um, so, you know, we find that a great, great conversations with freight forwarders involve their kind of teams, not just in the UK, but also teams on the ground in the country in which you, you, you wish to import. Um, you need both limbs in a conversation and everybody agreeing who's doing what, who's responsible for what in the supply chain, by which I don't just mean the business, I mean your customers as well. You need to work out who's actually down for doing what. So we've done loads of diagrams, loads of boxes and arrows, working out who's doing what for who. Get that agreed with your supply chain, get that agreed with the freight forwarder. Make sure you're all using the same language and understand what, what different terms mean. Make sure the freight forwarder can actually offer the services you need them to offer and get that absolutely cracked before you send the goods out. So freight forwarders, I think, it's not their fault, but they're a key part of the supply chain. So if you can't get that limb of it right, then you're gonna get a problem there. So a lot of our work stems from that. Powered by Cooper Perry. The No Bull Podcast. So Damon, I totally agree. And I think that example is really key for demonstrating how it, it can be the case that freight forwarders can be part of the solution. But unfortunately, there are situations where they've become part of the problem. Um, you touched on unexpected costs, 155,000, I think you just said. How do businesses take things to the next stage? Because businesses are wanting to know that they're not going to have these unexpected costs and that goods are going to move t in a timely fashion through their ports. And you were starting to talk about communication being key. And could you just elaborate on exactly what it is that businesses could do to take them out of the headache and bring them <coughs> back into a much more better way of running their business? Yeah, I think, I think running their business is, is, is kind of key with this whole piece. Um, I think that this is all a supply chain conversation. It's not necessarily a Brexit thing. I think businesses should be doing this anyway. Um, to work out who needs to do what where, you need to pull apart your supply chain and work out where you as a business trade, what you're trading, who your suppliers are, who your customers are. Are they business to business? Are they business to consumer? Work out where you want to be immediately. Work out where you want to be in three, five years. Use Brexit as a kind of um, catalyst 
you know, really sort of redefine your business if you want to, because, you know, the kind of C-suite are going to kind of be really invested if there was ever a time to do it is now. Um, once you've pulled that apart and get some advice on that, the best advice that businesses could have would be to support um, that business in pulling apart their supply chain and working out what they do where and where they make the money, where they don't make their money. And we've had some amazing conversations with, with, with clients over the last few months, which are really rewarding for us. And I'm sure other advisors feel the same, but for the businesses, they, they, they've paused and they've actually stopped trading in some countries because they realized they weren't making any money there. And they just haven't been on their agenda to do that uh, pre-Brexit. You know, don't be driven by the tax agenda. Don't be driven by all this kind of insight you might find on the web, you know, contradicting views about what the tax position might be in different countries. You know. I think the best advice for me is to use your advisors and invite them to just pull apart your supply chain, work with you to pull apart the supply chain and work out what they're doing where. The other thing for me through time, a real bugbear for me is... Um, there seems to have been this trend, which thankfully I think is, is, is diluting a little bit now, um, where the bigger you are, the more you're kind of throwing your weight around. So things like, you know, um, big, big, some of the big retailers and manufacturers saying to, you know, the small kind of man subcontractor, hey, if you want to work with us in this country, you are going to be the one that's going to be deemed the importer. You're going to deal with all this mess. You're going to have your systems in place because we're who we are. And if you want to trade with us, you do it our way or no way. And it was the most kind of obstructive way of doing business. Now, that would have been driven by advisors saying, well, the nil risk approach for you, big guys, to do this. Now, I've seen a change in that over the months because my position on this is that it takes two to tango. You're supplying your customers. This has got to work for your customers as much as you or else you're going to lose your customers, right? So when you're pulling apart your supply chain, try and work out what works for your customer. So it's a mutual solution. Present that to your customer. Present that to your um, freight forwarder, invite the other parties to come forward, give their views, put that supply chain map out there, check everybody agrees, and you've got a really fruitful conversation, but what you haven't got is hidden surprises three months down the line when something might go wrong. So I think, you know, that's how we kind of adopt. So I'm sure other advisors might say the same. Um, but for me, you need to start from that and, and pull the supply chain apart, put it back together. And that's the most fruitful way. And finally, the other, the other point is I have another client who was grappling with one particular issue on origin and whether goods were duty-free or not when moving them into the EU. And he said, oh, well, one of our competitors, we understand, has spent over £200,000 in professional fees working out this point. Now, these are all six months old. And if somebody is spending, in my view, more than ten grand on something, it's probably, you know... It's probably unanswerable at the moment. So go and get some help from the regulatory bodies, whether it be customs or whoever it might be. If you get into the point where something's just, you know, think that through. I've said, you know, my competitor spent £200,000 working out an academic point. That doesn't sit right with me at all. So, you know, this is about getting your supply chain to agree, but also the kind of regulators to agree, the... The other authorities at the ports, you know, if your goods can get from A to B in a compliant fashion and all the parties understand the costs and who's responsible for the costs, then, you know, you're going to be home and dry with this. Let's not overcomplicate what is an already complicated subject. You're dead right that this is new for everybody. But speaking of what's new, we're not at the end of the journey here, are we? Because things are changing again soon. 
1st of July, there's a raft of EU led changes coming through that are supposed to make things a bit easier. But do you think that's likely to be the case? Yeah, you're talking about the um, changes for B2C. Yeah, those. Business to consumer sales. I think, yeah, there are some changes coming in from next month, as you say. I think they, they are um, positive changes that will offer simplification for businesses. Um, reduce VAT compliance requirements and so on around the EU, but we've left the EU now. So to take advantage of those, you need to implant your business within the parameters of the conditions that are that are laid out. That may may require a VAT registration overseas to the extent you haven't got one. It may even require you to be established in the EU. Certainly, probably will require you to think about your logistics routing and so on. But nonetheless, a positive simplification. Um, coming into coming into play next month. Um, think other changes moving forward that um, are going to be on the horizon. Obviously, we've talked quite a lot about Northern Ireland. Um, just remains a concern for me about where that heads. There are changes coming in in November anyway to think about potentially requiring some sort of establishment over there. So I think we need to pay a close eye on on the way where Northern Ireland is heading. Um, but then finally, just for me, I, th- I think that. In my view, the EU will just ever tighten up the compliance rules, I think probably by this time next year, in order to be the importer into the EU. I suspect it's becoming so difficult that you need to have a company set up over there so that you're putting yourself into a position within the EU, as was the case before, you know, when you just had a UK company, when we were part of the EU. I think the more I'm seeing um, a solution to a lot of the problems is to have a company over there. And whilst you don't need one, say, from a tax angle, when you get into wider regulatory issues, um, I think that's the way forward um, for clients to think about. Um, So I think tough times, tough times ahead, a lot to think about as we move forward. Okay, so we've uh, got a lot of information there. I feel like I'm being bombarded. So imagine now that I've just come in, just switched the podcast on at this point, and you've got a 30-second elevator pitch to tell me what I need to do to make sure that my business is Brexit-proof. Sit with your supply chain team, a good advisor that is just looking at it from a helicopter view, um, Work with your procurement team, sales team, get all the right stakeholders in the room, ignore any kind of internal politics in that and who owns what, just get everybody in the room and map out what you do where and with who, get that all agreed within the business, think about your business, what you do, where you want to be, then start thinking about the tax overlay, customs duty overlay, then you must, must, must communicate that up and down your supply chain and with your freight forwarder to ensure that everybody's in agreement. If they're not in agreement, understand why, flex it, work it through, get that coherent, agreed position. Because let's face it, if you've agreed something with multiple parties in multiple countries who are equally, you know, all those other parties looking at things from a local domestic angle at their end, if everybody's in agreement, there's a pretty damn good chance you've all got it right. Um, if you try and do it in isolation, and certainly if you look at the tax complexities first, before you do all of that, you're going to get nowhere, but you're going to spend an awful lot of money getting nowhere, and I don't want anybody doing that. So supply chain first, communication, then I think you're going to be okay. 
Wow, that is definitely longer than 30 seconds. But I think <laughs> you wrapped it up. That. <laughs> <laughs> but you wrapped it up beautifully. So that is absolutely fantastic. Helen, thank you for doing your best to keep Damien uh, on track. But, I did uh, say I'd try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you did wonderfully. So thank, thank you both of you. It's a really important subject and um, being uh, Brexit business uh, proof. I'm sure I can say that better in some other way, is, is really important. So thank you very much, both of you, for joining me today. Very welcome. And thank you, Steve. Just, are you putting this out on vinyl? Uh, it's not going out on vinyl. Oh, I will. <laughs> well, thank you anyway. Thanks a lot. Bye now. You've been listening to the No Bull Podcast. Share your thoughts, find us on LinkedIn, and send us a message. And subscribe to get notified of future episodes.